we're kind of in a moment. We need to be putting the needs of human beings, the needs of the planet over making money. We don't have big money backing us. What we do have is people. I think that people power is more than worth its weight in gold. Police brutality is a problem and we must be proactive in the way that we deal with it. Yes. This country has a violence problem. We don't have time to wait for a savior. We are our saviors. Remember how powerful you are. It's the job of young people to stand up and join this community and be willing to fight. Folks need to be able to speak truth to power and that isn't being done because a lot of people are hobbled by the two-party system. These two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, they need to be challenged. Both of their goal is to serve capitalism, and they do not do anything that challenges the capitalist system. They're not going to do that. We're at a point where people are waking up to how pervasive capitalist exploitation is. Neither of these two parties are going to push your issues far enough to where it does you any good. You keep pushing, you keep pushing, you keep pushing until finally this two-party monolith falls. We don't exist to be exploited. We deserve more. When you decide that you want change, that's when it happens. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to New Deal Democracy. I'm your host, Zach Hill, recording from deep inside the 610 Loop in the heart of Houston, Texas, and we've got an amazing show planned for y'all today. On this episode of New Deal Democracy, we are honored and privileged to have on the show Angela Walker, the 2020 Vice Presidential nominee from the Green Party. We discussed the Green Party platform and her campaign with 2020 presidential Green nominee Howie Hawkins, as well as the bankrupt corporate party duopoly and how America desperately needs viable alternatives to these two corrupt corporate parties. It is an absolutely amazing interview that you're not going to want to miss. If you've never heard Angela Walker speak before, you're in for a real treat. I was super nervous and more than a little starstruck, but lucky for y'all, she does most of the talking. After the interview, I'm also going to be talking about the cops that murdered Breonna Taylor getting away scot-free, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how both major corporate parties are trying to hold America hostage over the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, and much more. But before we get to our amazing interview with Angela Walker, we're going to start with this episode's Fireside Chat. The past couple of months has seen one of America's two major corporate political parties go to unprecedented lengths in an attempt at vote suppression. This party is threatened and scared. This party is desperate. And the dirty, underhanded tactics this party has used over the summer in an attempt to suppress the vote have been both blatant and overt. They have attempted to remove third-party candidates from the ballots of three crucial battleground states because they're afraid that their candidate is so weak that if voters have another option, well, they might just vote for that other option. Yep. One of the two major corporate political parties in this country has been actively fighting in the courts to remove a third party from three states crucial to the outcome of the 2020 election. This party has engaged in this corrupt, 
overt behavior because they know how weak their candidate is. They're afraid they might lose, but instead of actually doing anything to earn these people's votes, they would rather fight in court to remove third-party alternatives from the ballot. All of this drama and BS just so they can avoid addressing the issues affecting real, working-class Americans like jobs and health care. They would rather suppress votes than earn them, and honestly, it's disgusting. Now, it might come as a surprise, but I'm actually talking about the Democrats. They've been actively trying to get the Green Party kicked off the ballot in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Texas. And don't get me wrong, the Republicans have engaged in their own form of voter suppression going back decades with voter ID laws, disenfranchising convicted felons, and most recently, denigrating vote by mail. But the behavior displayed by Democrats in Angela Walker's home state of Wisconsin, my home state of Texas, and Pennsylvania have actually infuriated me more than any of the Republican attempts of vote suppression. This is because the Democrats' behavior is hypocritical, whereas I expect the Republicans to attempt to suppress the vote. I've made this point on the show before that I am less angered by the Republicans' degenerate behavior because I expect it from them. It doesn't shock me, and they're not hypocrites about it. But to see blue checkmark Democrats talking about how important and sacred the right to vote is, and how democracy is at stake, and how evil Republicans are for attempting to suppress the vote, while the Democrats are actively trying to suppress left votes, is absolutely infuriating to me. The hypocrisy of the Dems has been on full display during this whole green vote suppression debacle. Republicans have never wanted anyone other than rich white people to vote, but they've also never hid that fact from anyone paying attention. But Democrats, since the New Deal and FDR, have claimed to be the party of the working class. So for them to continue to use rhetoric about how sacred the right to vote is while actively suppressing votes has just continued to piss me off and drive me further away from their corporate party. The fault lines between leftists and corporate Dems just keeps getting deeper and wider. So let's dive into the details of what actually happened in these three states. In Wisconsin, Green Party vice presidential nominee Angela Walker's home state, her and her running mate Green Party presidential nominee Howie Hawkins were kicked off the ballot. Democrats in the state used a minor technicality regarding a change of home address on petition forms for ballot access as the pretext for the Greens being excluded from the ballot. Later in the interview, Angela speaks to how what happened in Wisconsin was deeply hurtful and deeply personal to her. You're going to want to hear what she has to say about it. In Pennsylvania, which is shaping up to be one of the most important states in the 2020 election, the issue also revolves around ballot access petition form technicalities. It's a really complicated story with placeholder candidates, petition forms, faxes versus emailed affidavits, and original versus photocopied affidavits. It's a mess, but long story short, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled the Green Party hadn't met the requirements to be on the ballot in November. It was a 5-2 to two decision, 5 Democrats and 2 Republicans. Also, 
This was the only issue holding up the state from sending out their mail-in ballots. The Democrats literally delayed sending out ballots so that they could keep the Greens off. In fact, they actually had to extend the deadline that they would receive mail-in ballots solely because of this delay. You can't make this shit up. Even in my home state of Texas, which isn't even really in play for Biden in my opinion, the Democratic Party went to great lengths in an attempt to remove Texas Greens from the statewide ballot. The Texas Supreme Court, which has eight members, all eight of which are Republicans by the way, cited eight to nothing to allow the Greens to remain on the ballot in November. The Democratic claim in Texas was regarding filing fees, which are required for third party, but it was thrown out on a technicality. So the only state out of the three where the Greens remain is the state led by Republicans who see it in their best interest to allow Greens to remain on the ballot. In all honesty, the cognitive dissonance on display from the Democratic Party is shocking to me. Did they really think that by attempting to kick the Green Party off the ballots in these three states that they would be helping Biden somehow? Are they really stupid enough to think that anyone even remotely considering showing up and voting for Howie and Angela would allow themselves to be forced to vote for Biden just because the Green option has been removed? I can't speak for anyone other than myself, but all this has done is just piss me off even more and strengthen my resolve to vote green this election. But most importantly, it has reinforced my position that I'm never giving my vote to a Democrat ever again until they earn it, which might not ever happen again. This is how politics used to work. A candidate would run on a campaign promise that is popular with a wide majority of people, and when the candidate won office, they were expected to deliver on that promise. If they didn't deliver on their promise, then the people would hold that candidate accountable and vote them out. This is called transactional politics, people. If they want my vote, they have to give me something. They have to earn my vote, and my vote will not be given away for nothing. Right now, the Republicans and the Democrats are offering the working class literally nothing, which is why I'll be voting for Howie and Angela this election. Biden could have offered us a federal jobs guarantee or universal health care, but instead, him and his party spent their time in court attempting to get the Greens kicked off the ballot. And don't ever forget what they did to Bernie in 2016 and 2020. Honestly, fuck them. They made this bed, they can lay in it. There is no place for leftists in the Democratic Party. Now, I'm not here to tell you how to vote, because that's what Democrats and Republicans do. My only job is to present an analysis of the current state of affairs as best I see it, and how I personally feel about the events unfolding in our country. And my honest assessment right now is that a third party that addresses the needs of the working class is the only way forward. Continuing to vote for Democrats doesn't let them know how you truly feel about them. If you're a leftist or a progressive and you keep voting for Democrats, they think you're actually approving of their corporatist policies. They have no idea that you're a leftist or a progressive because you just voted for a corporate Democrat. Now, I know a lot of you have tuned out electoral politics lately, especially since Bernie suspended his campaign. But I would encourage 
anyone listening to do anything but stay home and not vote out of protest. I'm not going to vote shame anyone on the left, ever. But if you stay at home and don't vote, you're losing the only leverage you have over these corporate parties. Vote for what you want and what you believe in, not against what you're afraid of. Angela Walker is the mother of one and the grandmother of five. She is a fierce advocate for the rights of black, brown, and indigenous people, the LGBTQIA community, labor, and the earth itself. She is also the 2020 Green Party vice presidential nominee running alongside Green Party presidential nominee Howie Hawkins. Angela Walker, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on New Deal Democracy. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm well, thank you, and thank you for having me today. Absolutely. It's an honor and a privilege to have you on New Deal Democracy. So I thought we'd go ahead and get started by discussing the Green Party platform in 2020 uh, that you and your running mate, Howie Hawkins, are running on. So what are some of the most important issues and policies on the Green Party platform? I think that the one that is the, the uppermost in people's minds right now is a full strength Medicare for all um, as a community controlled national health service and also a full strength, you know, undiluted Green New Deal where we are, you know, talking about reversing climate change, where we have a plan to reverse climate change. We have a plan to, you know, retrofit our um, buildings and, and, you know, transit infrastructure and, and all of these things. Uh, and I think another thing that is really, really hitting home with people is we have an economic bill of rights, you know, a federal job guarantee for those who are able to work and, you know, willing to work and for everybody, uh, a guaranteed income above poverty, you know, doubling social security for our elders, uh, making sure that everyone has access to safe housing, uh, healthy housing, uh, walkable neighborhoods. Um, we're talking about, you know, moving to a socialist economy uh, where we've got worker cooperatives and, and, you know, people actually being able to receive the full benefit of their labor instead of, you know, what capitalists deem that they should have. So, I mean, there's a whole lot in this platform for uh, revamping the way that we are, are living in this country. Yeah, and I think y'all's platform really aligns very closely with FDR's Economic Bill of Rights that he proposed like way back in 1944 that we've discussed on this show previously. And, you know, leftists have been fighting for those same rights forever. And um, it's just so refreshing to hear candidates like you and Howie openly and honestly discussing these issues that are really affecting working class Americans. And you just simply do not hear Democrats and Republicans talk like this. And that that's really the thing that's drawn me into the Green Party, specifically with you and Howie, is every time I listen to you guys do an interview, I just come away 
just feeling hopeful and optimistic. And it's just so refreshing to hear candidates that are just really addressing the issues that really are affecting working class Americans. And both of these two major corporate parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, they're not offering anything to the working class. They're really catering to Wall Street, corporations, and really the suburbs at this point. So I I guess the next question would be how this bankrupt two-party system really needs to be revamped and how a third party that's addressing the needs of the working class is really the future. Can you, can you speak to like how badly this country needs a third party that can really address like working class issues? I think you're saying it. And I think that everything that you just said, you just made the entire case for us. Um, The fact that these two parties of this duopoly really do not feel that they have to address the working class, that we are not people that they have to engage, um, that when they're, they're doing their pandering, you know, it isn't to us. And their policies are not policies that benefit poor people or working class people. They were just not in their mind. And so I think that one of the most important things, and just like touching on what you previously said, you know, about the fact that Howie and I are both working class candidates, this is very real for both of us. You know, he's, he is a retiree. He's, you know, living on his pension. And for me, I'm a, you know, I drive a dump truck. I'm someone who lives check to check. You know, I'm someone whose medical insurance is tied to my work. And in the event that, you know, God is forbid something happened where I can't work, you know, I don't have coverage. And, you know, the need for, you know, housing, things like that. All of these things for me are very personal. This is my life. You know, this is the life of everybody that I know and care about. So this, this, excuse me, the issues that we're raising are not these esoteric issues that are off in the ether. This is something that is, you know, intimately personal to the both of us. This is our lives. And so I just wanted to make that that case and also you know thinking about the fact that the two corporate parties this isn't their life this is something that they've gotten away from this is you know needing to access medical care needing you know what it is we as workers and and poor folks face every day those are conditions that they've divorced themselves from so and and a lot of the time are unable to speak to So um, I think that going forward, you know, a lot of people have been watching the Democratic Party push the Green Party off the ballot in a lot of different states or attempt to. Um, People are starting to question whether we really have a democracy or not and, you know, why the two parties are not listening to what the folks in the street are asking for, you know, things like defund the police, things like, you know, legalize and decriminalize marijuana and sex work, things like uh, we, you know, we need a real Medicare for all. Why are those things not things that they feel an urgency to make happen for us? Because they don't feel like they owe us anything. They, you know, they feel like they have us in their pocket. And we, you know, we here on the left, we're a threat. 
<laughs> yeah. And happy, happy to be so. I want them uncomfortable. I want them to understand that, you know, yeah, you might have, you know, the podium and all of these things now, but the fault lines are deepening and your monolith is going to tumble. It's just a matter of us keeping pushing and, and third parties and fourth parties and fifth parties, we're raising issues that no one else is raising. And it just reminds people that um, you're not chained to this, this two party monolith. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. And I, I think the energy and passion that I hear from you and Howie when y'all do interviews and you discuss things is so authentic because you're absolutely right. Like this is y'all's life. This is what y'all are fighting for. And the reason that these two corporate parties can't speak to these things is because they don't have any of these problems. They've all got money and they can't, they can't actually stand in front of working class Americans and speak to living paycheck to paycheck or having to worry about, am I going to pay my rent or am I going to pay my health insurance premium for this mm -hmm. month? Because because they've never had those problems. So they can't even fake it. But with people like you and Howie and, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans working class, these are real. These are personal issues that affect us day to day. And you mentioned the ballot access with Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Texas here. And that, that just upsets me so much because the Democrats, instead of trying to earn people's votes from the left and offering working class issues, they would rather just take the option away. And I don't really know what they think is going to happen. Do they think they're going to like like slap us in the face and then we're still going to go vote for Joe Biden anyways because the Green Party's been taken off the ticket? I, the, the cognitive dissonance, it doesn't even really, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I just, it, yeah, it, it's frustrating, but it's impossible for them to speak to those issues because it's not anything that affects them or that they care about. So this, in this two-party monopoly, it seems like, and I, I get a lot of this from people on the left, where people are constantly falling into the trap of voting for the lesser of two evils, where they're, they're taught to vote against something that you hate, and instead of voting for what you believe in and what you actually want. And this falls, this kind of creates this lesser of two evils situation where we're constantly presented with two horrible corporate candidates like Clinton and Trump in 2016, and now Biden and Trump in 2020. So what is your pitch to leftists to vote green instead of voting for Biden this election? And again, you just made our case. Like, and, and how he puts it best, I love the way that he says this, that if you are a leftist, if you are a progressive, and you, you know, right now your, your vote is your voice and it is your leverage with these people. They want something from you. You have something to bargain with. So if you are someone who is a leftist, someone who is a progressive, and you give your vote to one of you know, the two parties of this, this monolith we have here, no one knows that you're a leftist or a progressive because you voted for them. You know, you're, you're, you know your vote is saying, I, I am okay with your policies, or I accept what you're offering me. And why do that? I mean, I understand, you know, and I, I'm, I'll, I'll be the first to say, I understand that there is a lot of extremely understandable and justifiable fear of that person in the White House, you know, keeping that place. Yeah. I understand that. 
But I also want people to remember that for a whole lot of our communities, the conditions that we are seeing under that individual are not new to us. We've been getting the, the crap kicked out of us for decades. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not, you know, he, he has to go, but we also understand that what we are dealing with is much bigger and much more deeply rooted. He is a symptom. He is not the disease. And so I would, you know, I'm not going to vote shame anybody. I'm not going to chide anyone. I will simply say that why accept what you don't want? These folks feel like, particularly in the case of the Democratic Party, I don't too much deal with the Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I can't really speak to them in yep. their base. That, that's something I don't mess with. But as far as the Democrats, it's abundantly clear that they do not feel that they have to be respectful of, of working class people, particularly working class folks of color, mm. queer folks, people with disabilities. They're not talking to us in a, in a way that offers us anything. And so, you know, I understand people wanting to vote for harm reduction, but is it really harm reduction when this candidate that you're being offered, both of them, you know, embrace everything we are not asking them for? It doesn't make any sense. And so I think, you know, in this election year, more than any other, I would say in my lifetime, I, I think it's, is they have they have played their hand to the point where they are not even trying to represent poor and working class people. And they certainly do not represent the left. So, you know, if your vote is your voice and it's your leverage, why hand that power of yours over to someone who does not respect you, is not going to embrace what you are asking, for as far as policies, why waste your vote? You know, stop voting for what it is you don't want. Vote for what you want and stand on it. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think you, you said it very well in your previous answer that Trump is a symptom. He's not the disease himself. The, the disease is capitalism and globalism and neoliberalism and neoconservatism. So, and Biden already told us, Biden already told us that if he gets elected, nothing is going to fundamentally change. And we're going to go back to the Obama part three. And um, Obama is still really popular as a politician, but the policies that he and Biden enacted in his eight years in office killed the working class. I mean, we're absolutely, especially with the, the housing crisis and black and brown families having a disproportionate amount of their wealth in home equity and to lose those homes was absolutely crushing. And it, yeah, so I couldn't agree more about voting for what you believe in and voting for what you want because the Democrats, the only thing they're offering now is that they're not Trump. That's the only thing they're offering right now. That's their entire platform is we're not Trump. And they're not even, in the past, they might've even pandered a little bit and, and like tried to lie to the working class and say, hey, we're with you, we're about that. But even mm -hmm. now, that pretense is gone. That pretense is out the window. And it's literally, hey, they're, they're gonna try and hold us hostage because of how bad Trump is. And it's just really, it kind of makes me sick. And we touched on the fact 
that they tried to get the Green Party removed in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Texas, and they thought that that was somehow going to help them get more votes for Democrats. But really, it's just pissing us off more, like really, if I'm being honest. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of depressing when you think about it. But again, when I listen to people like you and Howie, it does just really fill me with hope and optimism because it's just so refreshing to listen to candidates that – can be open and honest about the real issues affecting working class Americans. And they have real solutions to address these problems that are affecting working class Americans. Um, And I'd say, you know, Wisconsin hurt. Wisconsin hurt. They used me moving literally 4.7 miles from my old place to my new, new place to push us off the ballot. I am from Wisconsin. These people know me. They know my record. They know, you know, the causes I've championed, you know, for them to have done this in this way was just, I did not, I will admit, I knew they were capable, you know, there would be dirty tricks play. I did not see this one, you know, for, for the, the reasoning they used. I didn't see that coming. And so for me, Wisconsin is very personal. Yeah, I, I can understand how you, you've been an activist in Wisconsin, you know, going back to your race against Clark, I think it was in 2014, if, mm-hmm. is that correct? So yeah, they know what you're about. They know that you're, you're about real working class issues. And for them to be so underhanded like that is just really disgusting. And, um, but I, the, the one thing I can tell you is that with people that I hang out with and leftists uh, down here in Texas and Houston, it's really just strengthened our resolve to vote green. And if we have to, like, we're not going to have to write in, but if I had to write in, I was going to. And it really just kind of, just kind of pushed me further to the left, you know, really just kind of radicalized me even more to see the dirty tricks that the Democrats are employing because (laughs) they would rather kick someone off the ballot than address the issues that they want. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's absolutely disgusting. So this kind of leads us into the last question and talking kind of about the medium and long-term goals of the Green Party moving forward, uh, looking to 2024, 2028. What are some of the goals of the Green Party moving forward? And then how can people listening at home get involved and help, you know, push this kind of further? Well, one of the biggest things that got me excited about this campaign and something that Howie is excited about is excited about as well is building left unity you know that we are running also as the nominees for the socialist party of the united states um which is just amazing that red green alliance that we talked about you know so many years ago has actually come into existence which i think is just amazing and so one of the things that we will be continuing uh to do is to Get folks, I think what's happening with the left is we are, we're all over the place. (laughs) And I think that we need to get organized. And as a party, we need to organize. And, you know, one of the things that Howie recommends that, you know, the SP does this, you know, we're dues, you know, if you're SP, we pay dues. And so that the Green Party, you know, is going to need to move to a model where people are, you know, a dues paying model. And, you know, we are actively, you know, you're not, this isn't a spectator sport. 
you know, you're involved in, in the way that your party is working and in the things that we're moving outside of elections. And also getting into our own local communities, you know, and this is something that when I'm, I'm speaking in broad terms, I'm also talking about myself because I'm not a native of Florence, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my, my activist and organizing community is not here. And I am having to myself figure out how to move, you know, who's moving what here and, you know, how can I be involved and how can I be helpful, which is something that we are encouraging all of the greens to do. Get involved in your, and so many of y'all already do this, you know what I'm saying. Um, Are building relationships with our, you know, our local communities, what's happening. You know, there's, there's still a rebellion happening in a lot of parts of the country. So, you know, how can we show up and build, you know, solidarity with the folks who are working and, and things like that. And eventually somebody's going to ask you, yo, you know, who are you representing? Who are you with? And we can talk about that. And, you know, and I'm thinking it will bring people into the party, but also, you know, bigger than that, when we need people to stand with us, community members will be able to say, yes, I know them. I know the Green Party. This is such and so, such and so, and they represent the Green Party. And when we were doing this, that, and the third, they were here with us and, you know, weren't pushing an agenda. They were here, you know, offering resources and helping. And so I think that we're going to have to spend time building relationships with our communities, you know, meaningful relationships and, you know, integrating ourselves, uh, into the work that's that's being done. When you say socialism to a whole lot of folks, you know, they get their backs up until you start talking about issues. And then it's like, oh, okay. So I think there's a lot of like knowledge sharing that we're going to be having to do. I think that, you know, with the COVID pandemic being unpredictable, you know, going fall into winter, we don't know what to expect. I think our you know, mutual aid efforts and things like that that have been happening, our people are going to need us. And so we want to be working with, you know, groups across the left who have already been doing this work, you know, plug in those of us who have not plugged in, plug in where we can and be helpful. And also just, you know, doing knowledge sharing within the party um, and considering how to, make ourselves, you know, more of a force in in coming years and not just for electoral politics, but, you know, period, and how we can strengthen our relationships with other parties on the left and other groups on the left who are, you know, doing the work and been in the streets and, and ways that we can join up with that too. So we've got a lot of work to do ahead of us. And, I think- uh, oh, go ahead, honey. No, no, you're good. You know, I was going to answer the last part of the question um, that if people want to get involved, find your local Green Party, um, plug in to your local Green Party. And if you're not sure of what that is or where that is, hit us up on our website, um, www.howiehawkins.us. We do read our comments and messages. <laughs> A whole lot of them are really horrible. <laughs> we still read them. Don't let the haters bring you down. <laughs> Woo, child. 
Man. And so, um, yeah, hit us up and just ask us, yo, I'm in such and so town. Is there a Green Party local here? Um, and folks will get you pointed in the right direction. So you can start there, you know, hit us up. And if you know folks in your local party, how can you get involved? They always need folks. We're always looking for people. Um, and, you know, for people, because we don't have big media access in the way that, you know, the folks in the, the party monopoly do, mm-hmm. we need folks to, you know, share us on your social media platforms, you know, talk about us, word of mouth, you know, y'all got holidays coming up that people are going to be, you know, well, it'll be post that, but I mean, it's still a discussion worth having, but like when you're, you're having discussions around people because there's a lot of people expressing frustration that they only have two choices. If it's safe for you, you know, if you're not under threat of harm, have that discussion with them of why you support us. It's a very powerful commentary when it comes from, you know, folks who are supporting us rather than us ourselves. So. But yeah, like people in your friends and family circle, I going to be a lot more receptive to it if they, they know you. And I think it's very well said um, earlier when you were mentioning local activism and mutual aid and just there's so many people suffering right now around this country and there are so many people that need help and just going out, you know, through direct action and mutual aid. I know, for example, we've got a group here in Houston called Age of Change, and every Thursday we go downtown and we create care packages for the unhoused, and we give them cold water, Gatorade, and hot pizza and some homemade baked goods like brownies or cookies or something, and we've been doing it for only about six weeks now, but when we go on Thursday, they're lined up waiting for us now. Like, like we, we, we're dependable and they're, they're excited. Their faces are lighting up because we've got hot food and cold drinks and stuff for them. And they're starting to ask us who we are, you know, who are y'all? What are y'all about? And that's opening the conversation. And I think the more that people can get involved in their local communities and helping and showing by example of like what leftists are about, Mm -hmm. um, that can build up the reputation and the trust in the community so that when it does come time for electoral politics, Hey, you know, we've been around in the neighborhood for years now helping you. Let's have a conversation about what we're about. And they're going to be open to that because we're not a party that just comes around once every four years asking for a vote without anything transactional in return. Like we've been in the community on the ground, busting our butts, trying to help like leading by example when the Democrats and the Republicans aren't going to help anybody like that. So I, I think getting involved locally and networking as much as possible to really build a, an electoral base that can be called upon when needed, when the, the chance for electoral change is presented. But in the meantime, doing whatever you can in the community just to really help yeah. um, is really the way to go. And, that, and that's, that's what I recommend anyone listening right now across the country, just whatever city you're in, you know, you just got to get off your butt and you got to do something. You know, the first step's always the hardest, but once you're out there, oh man, it, it just feels amazing. It feels amazing to be productive and to be helping and to really feel like you're making a difference. And what you're doing when you are doing things like that is you're building a reputation for yourself in the community so that people will say, hey, that Green Party, that if you need, if you got a problem, or if you need something, you can depend on them and they're going to help you. They're going to be responsive to you. And uh, I think that is how the Greens can really differentiate themselves from 
these two corporate parties that are essentially non-responsive or unresponsive to any kind of working class demands. And I think that's just really got to be the future um, moving forward. I just really think that's the only way. And I'd also just uh, throw in, you know, for folks who are new to this work or in a new place like I am, I think that it's very crucial that you find who the local leadership that is moving things are, you know, those local organizers Mm -hmm. and, you know, reach out to them and let them know that you would like to be helpful. How, how best can I help? You know, we're not coming into a situation with the intent that we're running, running things or we're saving anybody. Um, (laughs) Cause some people do that and I've seen it and it's not pretty. Um, so, you know, if you're new, just kind of, you know, find the local, local folks who are moving things and approach them and let them know that you're interested in helping and then ask how, how best can you be helpful? Yeah, no, I think that's very well said. Um, Angela Walker, this has been absolutely amazing. I'm very starstruck. We were kind of talking about this earlier. Um, I'm just super excited to have you on and it's just absolutely been amazing. And this has been so great. Um, you want to take an opportunity to share some of your social media where people can find you online, your social media platforms. Yeah. I mean, we're all over the place. You know, our website is www.howiehawkins.us where people can not only you know, examine our platform at close range, but also there's policy papers and questionnaires and all of the things for people who need a deeper dive into how we fund these policies, you know, what the genesis of a lot of them were. Howie is is a prolific, prolific writer. So, you know, all that information is there. People want to buy yard signs and all that kind of stuff. That's on there too. My social media, super easy. All three of them, my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter are Angela N. Walker. Um, And easy to find. If I don't get to your message, like immediately, just know I work. It's coming. Um, So, but yeah, they're all Angela N. as in Nicole Walker. And I, I do read my own stuff. Absolutely. And I, I just want to really encourage um, anyone that's not familiar with uh, yourself and Howie, just really go on YouTube and listen to some of y'all's interviews that you do, because it's, it's absolutely inspiring. And it's so refreshing to hear a presidential and vice presidential nominee that are speaking to real issues affecting, you know, working class Americans, kitchen table issues, jobs, wages, health care. These are the things people care about. And neither one of these corporate parties just seems to be, they don't seem to care at all. They, they can't even be bothered to pander anymore. So just thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been so amazing. Angela Walker, vice presidential nominee of the Green Party. Thank you so much for coming on New Deal Democracy. This has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to New Deal Democracy. I'm your host, Zach Hill. And we're going to jump into a little bit of news here. We're going to start off with the Breonna Taylor case. So, Daniel Cameron, the black Republican attorney general, you know, who's a protege of Mitch McConnell, 
he had been doing a special investigation on this case, and you know he finally came out with um, the charges. And there was only one charge against one of the three Louisville cops involved in Brianna's murder. And the charge was for wanton endangerment, which essentially means that the only thing that was found wrong with anything that they did was shooting at the people in the apartments adjacent to where Brianna Taylor and Kenneth Walker were asleep that night. Think about that. So Brianna Taylor gets murdered, and her life is lost. And the only thing that the judicial system finds wrong with the whole botched raid is that the people in the adjoining apartments were endangered. And that's the only thing they found wrong with this. So how does that even happen? Let's go back a little bit and kind of, you know, go through this. So the allegation from the family of Brianna Taylor and Kenneth Walker is that they heard a pounding on the door from a battering ram, essentially. And they shouted out, hey, who is it? Who's there? Didn't hear anything. Kenneth Walker grabbed his gun, fired the first shot as a warning, and then the cops returned fire. Now, the cops claim that they did announce themselves on this raid, even though, (laughs) this is the crazy part, they had asked for the warrant to be a no-knock raid. But what these cops are actually claiming is that after they got the permission for the no-knock raid, then on the fly, on the ground, they just, like, changed their mind and decided to do a knock-and-announce raid instead, which means they knock politely first and say they're their police, and then that if they don't hear anything, then they go in. And honestly, the strongest evidence to me that these cops did not announce themselves is the 911 phone call from Kenneth Walker, where he's calling... 911 and he's frantically saying someone's trying to break into my apartment someone's trying to break into my apartment I don't know what's going on right now like you can't fake that in that moment that's the most traumatic and tragic moment of his life and there there's no way to fake that that situation and lie about that so and the New York Times interviewed 12 witnesses from the complex And only one of them claimed that they heard the police um, announce themselves. And there was also one person who was outside smoking a cigarette. And he said that they did not announce themselves. So what the cops are saying is that since they announced their presence as police, and then Kenneth Walker fired on them, well, then everything that they did afterwards, where, where they shot Brianna and shot up the apartment and everything, was justified because it was in self-defense. And this is what they've said, is that everything was in self-defense. So the whole thing just smacks of a cover-up. They did not have body cams at the time. They now have instituted body cams. I'm not sure if they actually are wearing them or not yet, or if they're in the process of getting them operational. But that was one of the stipulations in the $12 million settlement that Breonna Taylor's mother actually received from the city of Louisville. And interesting enough, they're claiming that it was not a no-knock raid, but one of the other stipulations of the $12 million agreement with Breonna's mother is that no-knock raids would not be allowed in the city anymore. So why would they go along with her asking for no-knock raids to be banned if they're claiming 
that they didn't do a no-knock raid anyways. So the whole thing just stinks. And, you know, this same... There was, like, think five cops on, on the scene this night that in 2018 had a very similar botched raid. And the thing is, the night that Brianna was murdered... They, were, they weren't looking for Kenneth Walker or her. They were looking for two other people, and one of them, I believe, was already in jail. So the incompetence level is off the charts. They did so many things wrong, and for Daniel Cameron to come out with a straight face and said that the only thing that they did wrong was endanger the other people in the adjoining apartments surrounding Breonna Taylor's apartment is absolutely infuriating. And... It does not surprise me at all that the people of Louisville, as soon as these charges were announced, one charge, it's not even plural, one charge was announced, that they were out on the streets in force, in mass. And the police chief of the Louisville Metro Police Department, I think it's LMPD, they, they announced that there was going to be a curfew like two days before these charges were even announced, just in anticipation of the charges being announced, and that they were already calling in the National Guard like multiple days before the charges were even announced. And on the day the charges were announced, in broad daylight, in the afternoon, like 3 or 4 o'clock, is when the violence... And the brutality from the police started, which is like five hours before the curfew was set to go into effect. The cops didn't even wait on the curfew to go into effect. They didn't even wait for the curfew. And in broad daylight, they they kettle these people and they just brutalize them and start beating the shit out of them and arresting them. And apparently, charging them with felonies. Felony for rioting including one of the protesters who is Kentucky State Legislature Attica Scott, who is the lone black woman in Kentucky State Legislature and the author of Brianna's Law, which would ban no-knock warrants statewide. So they arrested her and charged her with rioting in the first degree, which is a Class D felony, and if they convict her, she would not only lose her right to vote, but would also lose the right to hold the office that she has right now. People, you cannot make this shit up. So, yeah, in Louisville, everything's horrible. They had two cops shot last night. I think I think they're both alive. Um, I saw the guy they arrested. I've not heard anything about which side he's on. He's definitely not on the right, I can tell you that. Um, it looked like it might be someone, you know, local to Louisville. And, you know, it's just, the whole thing stinks and it sucks, and it still feels like we're not even getting the full story because Kentucky State Police released a ballistics report this week that is also saying that Kenneth Walker didn't fire the shot that hit the cop. So the, there was one bullet that hit one of these cops that was there, and the Kentucky State Police is saying that that bullet was not fired from Kenneth Walker's gun. So... Sounds like friendly fire to me. It sounds like the cops shot themselves in this situation. So the whole thing is just horrible, but I mean, it, it, it led to nationwide protests. There were protests all over the country, um, justifiably so. And yeah, I, I just hope that the protests keep up, the people stay on the streets. And what, what you're seeing from the Republicans and the right 
is them trying to amp the pressure up on protesters and increase the amount of consequences for protesting. So we're going to charge you with a felony for rioting, and we're going to try and make it a felony just to exercise your First Amendment right to protest. And this is how they want to play it. So you know what, motherfuckers? Let's go. That's how y'all want to play this. Let's go. But I can only tell I can tell you it's only going to radicalize more of us and push us further to the left and make us more pissed off and make it worse for y'all in the end. That's all you're doing is making it worse for yourselves in the end. Because right now, the people in Louisville are thinking about how to take over city council and get rid of all y'all's jobs. That's what Louis that's what people in Louisville should be doing right now is thinking about how they're going to take over city council in the next couple of years and literally disband LMPD. Louisville Metro Police Department, get them out and create an entire new organization from scratch with a new name and a new uniform and every single person will be rehired by independent community review boards with third-party mental health evaluations to make sure these psychos and these racists and these pieces of shit can't ever get a badge and a gun again. And that's where we're at right now, is there is no reform. the, The chance for reform was months ago. We've been so fucking past reform for so long that I can't even see it in the rearview mirror anymore. And honestly, this is what the police get for being tone-deaf morons. When people are on the streets exercising their First Amendment right to protest against police brutality and violence, and you morons, you thugs in blue, respond with more police brutality and violence... It just shows how tone-deaf you are, and it shows how reform is impossible with you people. Reform is impossible with you people. So, we're going to tear y'all down completely, and we're going to rebuild organizations in our vision, how we want them to operate. And y'all aren't going to have nothing to do with any of it. And everything that we do is y'all's fault, because y'all can't stop killing people. Welcome back to New Deal Democracy. We're going to get into the the Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing here. And uh, yeah, so last last Friday she passed away. She'd had multiple bouts with cancer and had been, you know, in not great health for a while. But I'm not sure anyone actually thought she was going to pass before the election. And, you know, very predictably... The Republicans um, almost immediately, you know, said they were going to move forward with a nominee. And over this weekend, Trump has already put forward uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who is a Catholic and very much on the religious right. And everyone's freaking out about Roe v. Wade and what that's going to mean for the Supreme Court and the abortion. And it just seems like a lot of people on the left are kind of getting sucked into what I think the politicians on the left and right in Congress are really wanting to happen. And what what I think is really going on here is that Congress, for seemingly like decades, has essentially ceded their power to the Supreme Court and they're acting deferential to the Supreme Court and acting like the Supreme Court is an unequal branch with more power than the legislative branch. And I think this serves 
a couple of purposes, but I think the most important one is that what it allows the politicians to do, people like Pelosi and Schumer and McConnell and these people, is it allows them to really deflect a lot of the blame for the lack of you know meaningful legislation that gets passed in Congress in multiple ways. And what I mean by that is that these politicians in Congress, they don't mind having things like gay marriage and abortion and gun rights and all these controversial wedge issues. They don't mind these being legislated in the Supreme Court because what it allows them to do as politicians is to deflect blame for not passing meaningful legislation on these issues and also act like they don't have anything to do with it and like the Supreme Court is the one to blame when their constituents get rulings that they don't like. So if someone calls up Mitch McConnell and says, hey, I'm not happy about this court ruling or how can't how come we can't do this, he can say, oh, it's not me, it's the courts. Look at the courts, it's the courts' fault. Y'all need to just vote and then we can just add more people to the courts. And you're seeing it on the left already where people that were maybe on the fence about voting for Joe Biden or not showing up or thinking about a Green Party, like third party, like uh, voting for Howie or Angela, I- I'm seeing them running back to Biden and the Democrats and they're using the sense of urgency around the court as their excuse for why they need to vote Democrat when maybe a week or two ago they weren't really considering voting for Democrats. And I can tell you this is exactly what these politicians like Schumer and Pelosi and McConnell want because they've essentially been gifted hostage issues to hold over both of their respected bases' heads as a way to force them to vote for Democrats or Republicans, either way, whichever side you're on, without having to really offer anything. They don't have to offer us a federal jobs guarantee or universal health care or anything on the left that we would be interested in because they're banking on the fact that holding up the Supreme Court as existential and how important it is is going to be enough to drive people from their party to the polls. So honestly, I think this is a gift, and it's going to play both ways, It's it, but I think people in the Republican and the Democratic establishment are not unhappy that this happened right now because it creates another hostage issue where they can hold it over voters' heads and say, hey, you need to vote for us. You need to vote for us because of the Supreme Court. You know how important the Supreme Court is. You need to vote for us. But again, that that has nothing to do with legislation. That has nothing to do with legislation. And I think, honestly, the whole perspective on the court and its role as a co-equal branch with checks and balances within the federal government, I think the whole perspective is skewed right now, almost to where the Supreme Court is put on a pedestal above the legislative branch and above the executive branch, where like anything the executive branch and the legislative branch do can be struck down by the Supreme Court and like, ho-hum, that's just like how it's supposed to be because like the Supreme Court's the law of the land. And I'm just telling y'all, that's not actually what the Constitution says. So I mean like in 1803, you had Marbury versus Madison, which is a very famous Supreme Court case that everybody that's taken AP U.S. history knows about. And it essentially created judicial review, which is the precedent where the Supreme Court is allowed to decide what's constitutional or unconstitutional. 
So that's the first time that was created, and that's like 20 years roughly after the Constitution. Okay? So that's really the first time the Supreme Court, you know, even establishes what judicial review is. And I think it's important to remember the Dred Scott case in the 1850s under the Supreme Court of Roger Taney. And Taney just recently had his bust removed from the Capitol. It's about 150 years too late on that one. But they finally just did that. And um, his claim to fame historically was that he was the chief justice that presided over the court that decided the Dred Scott decision. And for those of you that are not familiar, the Dred Scott decision... The Dred Scott decision was in 1857, and essentially Dred Scott was a slave that was taken um, from Missouri by his owners into Illinois and then back into Missouri, and he sued for his freedom in the Supreme Court, saying that once he was taken into free territory, he was then a free man. And the Roger Taney Court in 1857 said that Dred Scott could not sue for his freedom because he was not even considered a human being in the United States. He was considered property, and that property cannot have human rights, essentially. And it also spoke to the expansion of slavery and said that since slaves are property and not people, that you can't prohibit someone taking property really anywhere in the United States. So it was a sweeping decision by a court that was dominated by... Southern, you know, plantation-owning, slave-owning Dixiecrats, Democrats. And the case was seen as such a sweeping rebuke of abolitionist sentiment at the time. I mean, this was 1857. This is four years before the Civil War. And all through Bleeding Kansas and leading up to John Brown's raid. And the tension at the time in the United States was unbelievable. You think times are crazy now. Imagine pre-Civil War. And really, what this decision did, the Dred Scott case, was it led to... It led to a really... It led to a perspective change on the Supreme Court. And really, the Republicans, the abolitionists in the North, started a really, you know, concerted effort to denigrate the court and to belittle the court and to really... um just tarnish the reputation of the court and really frame it as an illegitimate body of unelected representatives or unelected politicians, really. They're they're appointed. And really to change the perspective on how people viewed the Supreme Court up to the point where the, the reputation and the power and the prestige and the prominence of the Supreme Court had been sullied so much by the time in 1863 when Abraham Lincoln issues his Emancipation Proclamation, which technically would have been unconstitutional because it freed slaves. And in Dred Scott's case, you know, the Supreme Court said that slaves were property and not people. So for Abraham Lincoln to issue his Emancipation Proclamation, you know, freeing enslaved people in the Confederacy, uh, that would have been unconstitutional, but no one saw it as that. They saw it as a you know, appropriate executive order to be respected. And the Supreme Court was so tarnished by that point that they didn't even try to overturn it. They, they didn't even try. And that, I think, is the perspective that's needing to be taken right now by people on the left, is really just starting to view these Republican appointees to the court as illegitimate. 
and they're illegitimate, and the left needs to do what they can to end the filibuster, to pack the court, and to really kill the Republican Party forever, if I'm being honest. But I just don't see that ever happening, because the Democrats love having the Republicans to essentially have these like pro-wrestling fake fights with each other over nothing. Um, and they, they like having the Supreme Court to hold over people's heads as a way to force them to vote in elections like this where people might not otherwise show up to vote. And I think that's essentially what you've got going on now is both of these parties on the left and the right, they enjoy having the Supreme Court to hold over people's heads and force them to vote like this. And really, in reality, the legislative branch and the executive branch should be asserting their authority over the Supreme Court. And one thing that I've seen already from Joe Biden and his team is, you know, they've got a public option, or at least they had a public option in their, their program. And already you're hearing from advisors in the Biden team saying, you know, we'd really like to do a public option, but we just think the Supreme Court's going to rule it as unconstitutional anyway. So, you know, we're not really going to bother. And then we'll come up with a watered down compromise that's not going to be full coverage like like some kind of universal health care would be. So, I mean, if you're on the left and you want to run out and vote for Joe Biden now just because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away and you hadn't planned to before, I mean, go ahead, do your thing. Like I said, I'm not going to vote shame you, but I, I'm just telling you, you're playing into what they want you to do because what they're doing right now is they're not offering you anything. They're not offering you anything except the potential of a future Supreme Court justice, possibly. And again, I just think they're playing you, and I think you're being used, and I think you're falling into a trap of you know voting against what you hate and voting against the lesser of two evils instead of voting what you want. And you know, do what you want, but I just really think that that's what's going on right now. And really, the, the Democrats should really be trying to really change the perception of the Supreme Court right now and really really create the narrative that the Supreme Court is illegitimate and that I really think I think if the Democrats in the Senate had any kind of guts at all they would definitely do what they're talking about right now which is ending the filibuster packing the court adding DC and Puerto Rico as 51st and 52nd states but I just don't think they're going to do that because then the Democrats would be in control from now until the end of time, and then anything that goes wrong in the country, they would be held accountable, and they don't like being held accountable. Like that, They like being able to blame Republicans as obstructionists, and if the Republicans really go away as a viable alternative to the Democrats in this two-party duopoly, um, it's going to expose the Democrats for how weak and how ineffective they are and how they've not gotten any legislation passed that's helped the working class in this country really since LBJ in the 60s. So that's kind of what's going on here. So do what you want, but I can tell you I'm not getting sucked into voting for Joe Biden because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm voting for Howie and Angela, and the Supreme Court's not going to change any of that. So I got a couple more stories I want to get into in this episode, and then we're going to call it a wrap. The next story is revolving around Chad Wolf, 
who is the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and who is just absolutely a piece of shit, but just despite all of the controversy swirling around him since he got promoted, apparently illegally, to acting secretary, you know, he's not even full secretary yet, he appears well on his way um, to becoming, you know, full-time secretary of DHS. So he had his initial confirmation hearing this past week, and despite, you know, a litany of scandals, like, he, he appears to be headed next week sometime, I think the 30th, they said, towards, you know, nomination, Senate confirmation, excuse me, um, to be, you know, full secretary of DHS. So let's kind of run through some of these scandals here that have been, you know, swirling around DHS and Chad Wolf really since since he took over. And I just kind of want to go through them here and just list them because it's quite a long list and they're all horrible and it doesn't seem to fucking matter and he's going to get this thing and he's just an absolutely piece of shit apparently. So let's get into this list and figure out all the reasons why he shouldn't be anywhere near power or money ever again for the rest of his life. So the first thing is that the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, and a federal judge in Maryland a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, ruled that he was unlawfully appointed to this position because DHS didn't even follow their own protocols of succession. So the GAO and a federal judge in Maryland ruled that he's not even really supposed to be in this position right now. So that's the first thing is that all the stuff that's been going on under his reign, under his tenure in DHS, none of this should have ever happened in the first place because he's really not even supposed to have this job. So I think that's really the foundation and the baseline to really start here with this guy. So the first big scandal, besides him even being in power, Chad Wolf, is that Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli, along with Brian Murphy, who's now a whistleblower, all three of them apparently were involved in changing intelligence reports to make President Trump look better. And there's really two kind of ways they were doing it. First is foreign intelligence. And this was regarding Russia and China and Iran and how they're meddling in the election. And apparently the initial intelligence report said that it was um, Russia that was favoring Trump and that it was Iran and China that were favoring Biden and they wanted to downplay the Russia-Trump part and then really upplay the China-Biden part and I guess to a lesser extent the Iran part with Biden as well. And I don't think really any of this is surprised to anybody that Russia, China, or Iran, you know, have an interest in who becomes the next president. But, you know, apparently uh, Cuccinelli and Wolf and Murphy were accused of you know, altering the intelligence reports to make the Russian interference less prominent, I guess, somehow, in, in the report. And the, the second one, which is actually more of a concern to me, was the domestic um, intelligence reports that were being created. And the initial reports that were written were really talking about how white nationalism and how right, the violence on the right, was really the biggest domestic threat to the country. And apparently the intelligence reports were, you know, adding Antifa and leftists to kind of have like a counterbalance to the right. So instead of it just being violence on the right, 
and that you know domestic terrorism from white nationalism on the right is the greatest threat you know to American stability you know here at home uh, they actually wanted to add Antifa and leftists to kind of give like a balance where there's like a both sides kind of argument like Trump always likes to say you know there's you know bad people good people on both sides kind of bullshit so that was really concerning especially that domestic intelligence threat where they throw in Antifa without any... Antifa's not an organization. Antifa doesn't have a president. They don't have a treasurer. They don't have a website. Antifa's not an organization. Antifa is an ideology, and really it just means anti-fascist. And what Trump has done is by labeling everyone that's a protester as Antifa or anti-fascist or whatever, it's just really a smear tactic that he's trying to do. So... The other thing that they were accused of earlier in the summer was spying on Portland protesters, where they somehow, and this was really never clear and never really revealed, somehow DHS and Brian Murphy were got a hold of encrypted messages from group chats of protesters out in Portland and were essentially spying on these protesters without warrants. And no one really knows how they got this information. Um... And that's, again, you know, the lack of transparency regarding what's going on <clears throat> with DHS. And again, that gets into these unidentified fed thugs with no names, no badges. We don't know if they were ZTI or ZT1. Were they Blackwater? We don't know still because they've not told us. And again, there's no transparency from DHS. And again, all of these problems have been going on under Chad Wolf as Chad Wolf has been acting secretary of DHS. And this gets us into the latest scandal, which is this ICE hysterectomy story. So if you've not heard, there are a group of 17 women at a ICE detention center. It's a concentration camp in Georgia where there's a doctor, Dr. Amin, who has been called the uterus collector. This is what he's been referred to by the women that are being held in this detention center, this concentration camp in Georgia. And there's a whistleblower named Don Wooten. And I don't want to get too much into this story now because it's really going to be the focus of my next episode where we're really going to focus on immigration as well. But this ICE story is going to be really my, my fireside. I'm going to really dig into it deep. But apparently what's going on is this doctor in Georgia tells these women that they have cysts on their ovaries and they need to be examined and they need to put under be put under under anesthesia for an examination and when they wake up they've either had full or partial hysterectomies with um, their uterus is removed and they they're being sterilized they're actually being sterilized and it appears to be a program that is being done in this ice detention center this concentration camp we don't know if it's been done at other concentration camps as well, where you know migrants and immigrants and asylum seekers are being held. But this story is absolutely horrific. And I'm not going to get too much into the history of eugenics right now in this story. We're going to save that for next week. But, you know, Democrats from day one were calling Trump a Nazi and saying he's the next Hitler. So now... When the Trump administration and DHS under his watch is doing things that are actually like fucking Nazis, there's nowhere you can't go past 11. You know, when you start at 11 on day one and you're calling Trump a Nazi before he's done anything, you're calling him Hitler before he's done anything, when he actually does do something comparable to Hitler, like 
forced sterilizations at a concentration camp, you know, there, there's really no volume level like Spinal Tap to turn the knob up on. Like, there's no higher level to go to because essentially the Democrats are the boy who cried wolf at this point. And, no pun intended there. And uh, Chad Wolf in his hearing said that if there's even a kernel of truth to this allegation that he's going to get to the bottom of it and they're going to find out what's going on. But who can believe them? Who can trust them? Because if it were not for this whistleblower, Don Wooten, the nurse, um, the nurse coming forward and telling these horror stories about these women... Like the, that, that these women were having these procedures done to them, and they would go to the nurse Don Wooten and say, "Ms. Wooten, why are they doing this to me? Why did he? Why did he make me sterile? Why did he take my uterus from me? Why did I get a hysterectomy? Why can't I have children anymore?" And she doesn't have an answer. She doesn't have an answer for any of that because they didn't consent to any of these procedures. These procedures were done without their consent while they were under anesthesia, and. From what I can tell, these are forced sterilizations, and it seems like a eugenics program going on right here in the United States. But I don't... We're going to get all into this. This is going to be the entire focus of next week's episode, where we're going to have a local group called Save TPS, and the organizer of that, Raquel, is going to come on and do an interview, and my fireside is going to be just about this ICE hysterectomy story and the history of eugenics in the United States. But I just couldn't do a segment on Chad Wolf in this confirmation hearing without addressing this ICE story. And it's absolutely disgusting. And honestly, I'm not seeing enough people talk about it. Like, I don't really understand why this isn't really the lead story uh, right now. I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And we're going to get into Trump's tax returns as, with a little bit of breaking news here at the end. But everyone's talking about Trump's tax returns, and it's the biggest story in the world right now. But when the ICE hysterectomy story came out, a week ago, like it barely got any news coverage. It barely got any, and it just didn't make any sense to me, and it was just really frustrating, and I kind of partially got to blame the Democrats for being the boy who cried wolf initially and not allowing an escalation of rhetoric on like what Trump is and like what he's doing. So this kind of gets us into the last allegation, the latest allegation of corruption against Chad Wolf and his wife works for a consulting firm called the Berkeley Research Group, which has, since Chad Wolf has been acting secretary of DHS, this Berkeley Research Group has been awarded contracts totaling over $6 million. That's right. So Chad Wolf's wife works for a company called the Berkeley Research Group, which is a consulting firm for DHS. And since Chad Wolf has become acting secretary, they have received $6 million in government contracts from DHS. And previously, before Chad Wolf became acting secretary of DHS, they had zero contracts with, the, with DHS. None. So before Chad Wolf became acting secretary, they had zero. And since he's become acting secretary, they now have $6 million worth of contracts. And Chad Wolf has said he doesn't know anything about it. He didn't have anything to do with it. He doesn't deal with procurement or budgets like that. That's way below his pay grade. He doesn't have anything to do with it. But for his Senate confirmation hearing to become full-time Secretary of DHS, he listed his number one asset as a $1 million retirement firm as a shared asset with his wife for the Berkeley Research Group. Again, you cannot make this shit up. The corruption is just right 
out in the fucking open, and it's absolutely disgusting. And Chad Wolf is absolutely a piece of shit, and he should step down immediately. Like, he just needs to pull an Alex Acosta and just fucking go away and leave. Just fucking leave. But that doesn't seem to be what's going to happen. It appears that he's on the fast track to get full confirmation this week, despite... All of this shit that I just talked about for the like the last 10 minutes. All the horribleness, all the corruption, the, the ice story, the hysterectomies, the spying, the protesters, everything. And it just doesn't seem to matter. And kind of what I'm getting at here, my, my last point, is DHS has only been around since 9-11. Before September 11th, DHS was not a thing. It was created in response to 9-11. And you're seeing a growing move on to not just abolish ICE but to abolish DHS completely. Because you're seeing the corruption, you're seeing the unconstitutional spying, you're seeing the intelligence reports being politicized. So what are they doing? What good are they other than just an empty money pit for taxpayer dollars getting wasted? Like, this is money that could be going towards a federal jobs guarantee, universal health care, a Green New Deal, any number of things this money could be you know, better spent on. And honestly, DHS needs to be gotten the fuck rid of. Get them, get rid of all of them. DHS needs to just be, just go the way of the dodo bird. It needs to be extinct and just gotten rid of. And that's really the only option. And you know what? Same thing goes for ICE. Both of them, ICE is running concentration camps and apparently performing forced sterilizations on migrants and asylum seekers. And DHS has been unconstitutionally spying on people. And the acting secretary has been giving sweet, you know, contracts, sweetheart contracts to his wife. And he wants to lie and say he doesn't know anything about it. Fuck these people, man. All of them need to go. And that's just really the only way to handle this is DHS and ICE just both need to be abolished completely. So I want to get into a little bit of late-breaking news here. We're recording on Sunday, and the New York Times has finally broke the story on Trump's tax returns, and it's kind of what a lot of people expected, where his finances appear to be just an empty house of cards built on nothing. And, you know, this all comes out a couple of days before, you know, the first presidential debate against Joe Biden. I believe it's on Tuesday night. And I'm sure this will give him some ammunition about that. But, uh, yeah, this has been, you know, like a big, big, everyone's freaking out and everyone's talking about it. And the big scandal is that he's only paid like $750 in federal tax for two years. I think it was 2016 and 2017. And no, I did not misspeak there. Like that's, that's a real, he paid 700, only $750 of tax in the years 2016 and 2017 and he's also alleged to be underreporting his profits when he's declaring taxes so that he can pay less and claim losses on properties. And it's also claimed that when he asks for money uh, for loans from people like Deutsche Bank or whatever, that he's overinflating his income and profits 
to, you know, let them know that he's got a revenue stream and he can, you know, pay his debts off. So to the government, he's always telling them, oh, I don't make any money. I lose money. I'm always losing money so he can pay less taxes. But then he turns around and he goes to banks and he's always inflating his revenue so that they can, you know, see him as credit worthy and want to loan him more money. And I don't think this is really a surprise to anyone. There was also a lot of other financial hanky-panky going on where he apparently paid Ivanka consulting fees, which is kind of essentially a kickback. A lot of other stuff like that. But, I mean, this isn't really too surprising, but, I mean, everyone's freaking out. And, obviously, what they're concerned about is that someone who, you know, has such a small amount of money, he doesn't appear to be a billionaire, he appears to be in debt to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Just That's personal debt. That's not even corporate debt. And the implication being that, you know, if the President of the United States has this much debt, you know, what is he susceptible to? Is he susceptible to pressure or blackmail or any kind of stuff like this? And again, they're not making any allegations of that. And they made a point of saying in the, in the story that there were no... New revelations of Russian connections. Everyone always is obsessed with the Russians. And I'd be really interested to get more information on Deutsche Bank. Because Deutsche Bank in Germany is really the the money laundering Russian oligarch bank of choice. So, that's, uh, I guess it's interesting. It's it's definitely going to be talked about for, you know, the last, for you know, the next couple of days moving forward. There's no doubt about that. I'm sure it'll be brought up during the debate on Tuesday night. Um, I'm sure that's gonna happen and you know everyone's losing their mind about it but I don't really feel like we learned anything new I guess other than just maybe confirming what everyone already thought but um again this doesn't mean that anything's gonna happen to him like I feel like you know he's just gonna get to leave office if he loses and nothing's gonna happen I just don't really buy that anything's gonna happen to this guy so and again I yeah it so we'll, we'll see I guess it's kind of interesting but, you know, this story came out Sunday night, and it's getting, you know, way more coverage than the ICE concentration camp story with the forced sterilizations from earlier in the week. So, you know, I guess I don't even really know what news is right now. So, I don't really have a whole lot to add to it, but I just wanted to talk about it because I thought it was newsworthy and people are freaking out about it. And I guess it's kind of interesting, but again, we're going to need more information. And really, even if they do get more information, where is it going to go? Where is it going to go? I just don't see it going anywhere. So, we'll see, but I don't know. So... Uh, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and sign off, and I'm going to come back um, with an outro, and uh, that'll be it. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to New Deal Democracy. I'm your host, Zach Hill, signing off for this episode, and I just want to thank anyone that's actually you know gotten all the way to the end of the show. I especially want to thank Angela Walker, the 2020 vice presidential nominee from the Green Party, for coming on today's episode. It was an absolutely amazing interview, and she was so nice and so gracious and just so down to earth, and it was absolutely amazing. And just, you know, really give her and Howie a look in a couple weeks when you're voting in November and just really check them out. I just can't recommend them enough. And uh, we got to do something about this two-party system. So, you know, voting green, I think, is the way to go. In the next week or so, my goal was really to get all my social media fixed because I've got no social media right now. I've got a Twitter account, but I'm not even really focusing on it. I need to get a Facebook and an Instagram. So that's my goal before next episode so that when I come on next episode, I can give you all the information. Y'all can start following me again. 
But in the meantime, if you do want to reach out to me, the best way is the email address for the show, New Deal Democracy, all one word, no spaces, no letters, at gmail.com. So you can reach me there if you're interested, and I do respond. I absolutely will. And again, thanks again for everyone that listened. Thanks again to Angela Walker from the Green Party for reaching out. Next episode is going to be all about immigration and a local group called Save TPS talking about temporary protected status. So that should be really interesting. We're also going to get into the ICE hysterectomy story that I kind of talked about a little bit today. Again, COVID is still going crazy, so everyone be safe, wear a mask, don't do anything stupid, and I will talk to y'all in two weeks with a new episode of New Deal Democracy. So thanks again for everything.